Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice well, hey, everybody. I think we're synchronizing all of our uh, little platforms here and going live. We're, and we started these faith forums this year, uh, all a part of Red Letter Christians and friends that are kind of under that big umbrella, as we say at Red Letter Christians, we're at our core a web of subversive friends uh, doing the, the the good the good trouble, as John Lewis said, and the holy mischief. And we've been talking about how our faith fuels the way that we think and the way that we act around some of these big um, social justice issues. So in January we talked about abortion. Uh, in February, we talked about gun violence, and then in March, we, we uh, talked about the death penalty. They've all been really incredible conversations. This month, uh, we're talking about immigration and, and uh, how our faith causes us to think about that. And boy, this is one of those things that sure is clear in Scripture. <laughs> in, the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it says we're to welcome the immigrant as if they were our own flesh and blood. In the New Testament, it says that we should uh, uh, take special care when we show hospitality to the stranger because we might be entertaining angels unaware. And of course, Jesus says, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. And when you don't welcome the stranger, you don't welcome me. Can't get much more crystal clear than that. And uh, I'm so thrilled to have two people that I, I just uh, admire so much for their work on this, but on a whole lot of other issues. Uh, but they're really on, on the front lines of thinking about and creating policies and showing hospitality around uh, immigrants and refugees, asylum seekers. And you'll meet them in just a second. But Alexia Salvatierra is here tonight. What up? And uh, Jenny Yang. Uh, so I'm going to introduce them in a second, but we've also felt like music and art is so important. Uh, I mean, it's always been important to movements. It's been important to the church. And so we've got a wonderful friend, Rosa Candida Romeras, that's going to ground us tonight in a song, Jesus, What a Savior. So Rosa, thank you so much for being here. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much. And I want to invite you all to take a moment and we're going to do a, a three breath prayer in the name of God, our creator, in the name of God, our redeemer, in the name of God, our sustainer. So wherever you are at, let us close our eyes and breathe in, in the name of God, our creator. In the name of God, our redeemer, and let us breathe together. And then in the name of God, our sustainer. Amen. Y al adorar a Dios juntos en esta noche, and as we worship God tonight, estamos reconociendo que el corazón de Dios nos reconoce 
fronteras ni murallas. We recognize that God's heart does not recognize or see any borders or any walls. So let us worship this God who continues to break borders and walls. Ah uh-huh. 
how you want to start a conversation tell you what before you go rosa and before you mute there tell folks you know that was so beautiful i think everybody wants more how can folks follow <laughs> your your get more of your songs so <laughs> yes um i am part of a uh, my name is rosa candida ramirez i am the daughter of salvadoran immigrants that came in the 1980s and um i am a pastora and i also work at the immigration resource center of san gabriel valley so i'm also working and getting accredited by the Department of Justice to be able to do this kind of work. So um, as I'm also preaching and teaching and, and leading God, um, leading God's word through music. Um, and so if you want to connect, look up La Fuente Ministries. We are bilingual, we're intercultural, and we're intergenerational. And this is what we do continuously hold on to the resurrection hope of a God that continues to see our humanity and continues to uh, to transcend borders and walls and meet us right where we are at. And to that, I say, thanks be to God. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. Thank you. So La Fuente Ministries, Rosa Candida Ramirez, how do they find you? <laughs> yes, you can look us up on Facebook or on <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> um, and then my uh, my handle is, I'm also on Facebook, and my handle is Rosa Candi, R-O-S-A-C-A-N-D-I, if you want to follow on Instagram as well. So, cool. We'll, we'll t- put it out on the social. <laughs> I hope we'll, we'll, we'll see more of you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Bless you. <laughs> thank you. Blessings. Well, that was a, a great start and grounding us in the sweet Lord and in a, in a little worship. And the conversation is going to be really uh, ho- a sacred conversation tonight, I think. So I, I want to welcome two folks that I've gotten to be, I, I've, I've had the privilege of being friends with for a lot of years. Um, and I, you know, I, people always give these big intros. I, I, I'd rather you just tell folks what you want them to know about you. I mean, both Alexia and Jenny have written wonderful books. Um, uh, and, and you should watch, you know, uh, check out Jenny's book, Welcoming, Welcoming Stranger, and Alexia's book, Faith Fueled, Faith Rooted Activism. Faith Rooted Organizing. Organizing, Faith Rooted Organizing. I got it over here. But uh, yeah. Um, and, we're, um, but you're, you're doing a lot. You've wearing a lot of different hats. Why don't you go first, Alexi? Cause you're doing the circle protection, Matthew 25. You're at Fuller. So tell everybody what they need to know about you. Yeah. So I'm a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. So I'm the professor of integral mission and global transformation, which is sort of a wild title. <laughs> anyway. um, and I also ran the Diplomado. In La Respuesta de la Iglesia, La Crisis Migratoria, which is a program for originally for just training Hispanic pastors and how to engage their congregations in responding to the immigration crisis um, on multiple levels. But the Diplomado now involves, uh, we're um, international and we're also in English now. 
So if you just want to learn how to engage your congregation, it's a six-month online program, and I run that. Um, and then I'm the madrina, which means godmother, which sounds a little ominous, but it's not, it's not like godfather. You know, it's like different. Um, I am the godmother of Matthew 25, Mateo 25, which mm. is um, in Southern California. It's uh, a mostly evangelical immigrant and non-immigrant believers coming together to stand with and defend the immigrant in the name of the spirit of Jesus. And we also have a network of puentes who are bilingual, bicultural Latinx millennials who are part of us and help make the immigrant, non-immigrant connection work. Beautiful. That's a good start. We're going to hear more about it. Jenny, um, and you're, you're, uh, we, we heard your kids in the background. So you've, you've got an exciting life and you're doing wonderful organizing. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So it's great know. to be with uh, dear friends, uh, mentors, heroes of mine, Alexia and Shane. Um, so it's great to spend the evening together. Um, collaborating and scheming. <laughs> so I, I live right outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and I am a mom of two boys. One is five, uh, one is two. And I currently work at World Belief, which is uh, a Christian humanitarian relief and development organization uh, that works mostly overseas. But in the U.S., we resettle refugees and serve immigrants in 17 communities across the United States. So in my position, my role is to really... Um, educate and mobilize churches in the U.S. to care um, about the most vulnerable overseas and in the United States, which includes refugees and asylum seekers and the broader immigrant community. Um, and my other role is, is actually to liaise with the U.S. government to track what legislation they're passing or hoping to pass the policies of the president and really um, translating that information so that churches can engage and, and be advocates for better policies and um, to speak with those who are on the margins. Perfect. And you, you kind of already got us into this a little bit, our language. I think there's some people that are leaning into this conversation today or watching it afterwards that um, might not know all the different kind of layers of this um, and other folks I'm sure that are already involved, organized and doing all kinds of stuff. But just for folks that might be new to the conversation, why don't you start, Jenny, by differentiating between immigrants, refugees and asylum seekers. And then, Alexi, you can kind of chime in as well. But yeah, go ahead, Jenny, start us off there. Sure. So an immigrant is a very broad label for anyone who leaves their country in which they were born and travels to another country. And so you could be fleeing poverty. You could be a high skilled worker who gets sponsored by Microsoft to come here. Um, you could be someone who's fleeing persecution. Um, but anyone who leaves their home and enters the United States is considered an immigrant. Um, obviously, there's high-skilled immigrants, like I mentioned, who are sponsored by companies in the United States, um, but there's various categories that make up um, um, someone who is considered an immigrant. Um, a lot of times what we focus on uh, within World Relief are, are refugees um, and asylum seekers. So a refugee is someone who is formally recognized by the United States government as having a uh, fled well-founded uh, a well-founded fear of persecution, they have a well-founded fear of persecution um, on the grounds of their race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. And so, if you meet that definition, you are vetted by the U.S. government and basically entered into a program in which World Relief, as one of the nine agencies, will um, resettle you into the United States. Um, so that 
definition and that label is um, formally recognized by, you know, by the United Nations and others. Now, an asylum seeker is someone who is not formally recognized by the government as someone who's fleeing persecution, but who wants to avail themselves of the protection of the state to which they're fleeing. So that's why an asylum seeker is someone seeking asylum, but again, is not formally recognized with that status. And so for these individuals, a lot of them are people who are trying to enter the United States either through the border. There are asylum seekers that actually come on a plane, but cannot return to their home countries and so end up remaining in the United States and claiming asylum in the U.S. And so these are the various categories. Refugees and asylum seekers are fleeing similar circumstances and that they are being forced to flee from their homes. But um, the, the label is different based on um, the government conferring status on these inv- individuals or not. And so I think it's probably important to say that that it's really the same criteria, number one, and number two, that both go through a vetting process. Mm-hmm. The difference is that refugees go through that vetting process outside of the country. Asylum seekers, you know, cross one foot on the border and ask and then begin the vetting process. And the first step of the vetting process is something called the credible fear test. So you don't even get in to do any of the vetting unless you pass something called the credible fear test, which is given by border patrol officials. So they're not like, it's not easy. It's not like everybody can pass that. But then you enter into a process and if you get accepted at the end, then you, you, have, you are an asylee, right? Which is very mm-hmm. the same basic category as a refugee. So I do want to say one more thing, though, about um, it's so complicated that I want to give people a really simple code, which I to understand this. Um, often in churches, people say to me, you know, well, why don't people do it the right way like my grandparents? And what they don't know is that it's not your grandparents' immigration system. That um, since 1965, you can't come to this country for the American dream. You know, you can you can only come. Well, you could have the American dream, but you have to stand in basically one of three lines. We call them blood, sweat, and tears. That blood means that you have a relative in the U.S. who is a permanent resident or a citizen who petitions for you. And then you have to wait your turn, right? And if that's, for example, in the case if you're Filipino and it's your brother or sister, maybe that's 20 years. So, you know, it's... It's, um, it's not a system that works very well, but it exists. Mm-hmm. And then sweat is that an American ap- employer has to petition for you and has to show that no American citizen wants the job. So again, it's not an easy process. Um, and then tears are refugee or asylum status. So blood, sweat, and tears are the only lines you can stand in to come to this country. Now, if you have, um, I think it's $500,000, um, I'm not sure, maybe a million dollars. But if you have that much money to invest in the United States, you can come right in. <laughs> yeah. So, it's you know, there are dollars. some other categories, but they're small. Oh, Lord have mercy. So we're, we're going to get, get going deeper. But before we do too much more, um, both of you are fueled by your faith. I mean, you just mentioned your book, Alexia, Faith Rooted Organizing. And um, maybe each of you could share a little bit more of the how how faith is part of what, you know, puts the fire in your bones and also, you know, creates a moral framework around this issue. You, you want to start us, Alexia, on that? And then Jenny, if you've... Um, 
Uh, you know, I was, I've, I've heard you talk. I don't know what scripture comes to your mind, but I love when you talk about the uh, uh, God's uh, uh, affirmative action, you know. <laughs> oh, that's the body of Christ, which is where yeah. I was going to go. Oh, good. Um, well, there you go. Well, yeah. uh, but there's actually, you know, let me start with the body of Christ and then to talk about um, being family, because there's two really different categories and both right. of them really matter. Um, so. I had a, a bike accident about five years ago where I destroyed my wrist. And that was the first time that I understood the body of Christ because it just didn't matter how good the rest of my body was. I was in agony, right? And then I thought, well, then why, if we are the body of Christ, do we have members of our body that are terrified of running for their lives and we don't care? Like, what's wrong? What's wrong with this body, right? Why don't we feel the pain in our members? And um, that's what I thought about how Jesus's healings, I believe that they were true, real. I also believe that they were symbolic, right? So he opened the eyes of the blind to show that he's the light of the world. Well, he, he cured a lot of people of a very particular disease. It's a disease where you don't feel the pain in your fingers or your toes. Uh, it's called leprosy. And I think the body of Christ is prone to leprosy. And that will never be what we're meant to be until we feel into the pain in our members. Um, so I, but I always love the scripture that the, you know, several body of Christ scriptures, but the one in first Corinthians 12 um, says specifically in it that the, I can't say to the hand, I don't need you, right? Like we're all necessary. But then there's this wonderful little line that says that you have to give more honor to the parts that have lacked it so that all the parts will have equal care for each other. Mm. So that's really, that's why I call that God's affirmative action policy. It's like you have to care more about the parts that have not been recognized as valuable in order for all the parts to care for each other equally. So the body would be well coordinated and healthy. So good. And then, you know, just the family, just even if we're not fellow believers and, you know, a lot of the people running for their lives all over the world are fellow believers. But if you're not a fellow believer, you're still brothers and sisters under the one parent, right? Under our, our heavenly father. And um, in my culture, if you're, if you get a call from a relative, <laughs> you got to respond because that's your family, right? Because, but underneath that, it's because you know that you're not well, if your family's not well. Mm-hmm. And so to just like to really take seriously that, that the people who, are running for their lives, our family members of ours. Mm. That's, that's really, really powerful. And Jenny, we'll come, come to you. You, your, your book's filled with scripture, your scripture and your faith is, is at the heart of so much of what you do. So you want to unpack any more of that? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a Korean Presbyterian church on the outskirts of Philadelphia. Um, I always, understood salvation to be an individualized action transaction between you and God. And it really wasn't until I started working at world belief when I began to understand the systemic injustices around the world that I started to realize, no, God, it didn't just give us the power of the Holy spirit for ourselves and our salvation. He literally is using us as his church to redeem the brokenness of this world and to bring his kingdom come here on earth. And this idea that we are part of the shalom and the peace that God is trying to um, 
and still in, in our global community and using us as his hands and feet is such a core part of our Christian faith. And I think it's one of the fundamental ways that God uses to actually bring people to know about his goodness and his faithfulness and his justice and his peace. Mm-hmm. And so I think for many of us, when we look around and we see the brokenness around us, it should not only bring us to our knees and force, you know, um, kind of take us to the Bible, but it should really inspire um, us to believe that God can actually work um, through us to redeem the brokenness of this world. And so, um, I mean, you can see it in the example of Jesus. It's not just what he said, it's what he did. It's the people he communed with. Um, and it's the way that he did it. And there were times when he was angry and there were times when he would sit and listen and and there were times when he would speak. And I think all of those things that Jesus did, uh, we have to reflect on our own lives. And, um, in first John two, it says that Jesus is literally our advocate before God interceding on, on our behalf. Um, and I think this idea of being an advocate or a paraclete, it says in Greek, um, is something that I think we ourselves have to embody as followers of Jesus. Um, and so as much as we can be a voice with those who are marginalized, I think it's it's actually um, exhibiting Christ to the world. Glory. Well, the, you know, it, it seems really clear that this is a theme of Scripture, something at the heart of Jesus. Um, and yet uh, there are a lot of Christians that say, well, individually, I should show hospitality and love to my neighbor. But when it came to the polls, I was very stunned that many Christians, um, immigration didn't even make the list of things that they were voting on in the election. For white evangelicals, um, they were the least compassionate or accommodating when it came to like welcoming immigrants. So let's talk about you all come into, you know, you bump up against this all the time. Uh, the, the things that people have in their, their mind or their heart that would stop them from trying to do a better job at welcoming immigrants. So, um, you know, they're taking our jobs or they don't pay taxes. So why don't each of you, we'll start with you, Alexia, but each of you take one that you feel like is one of the biggest obstacles for people showing compassion and uh, deconstruct it a little bit. So, um, well, because <laughs> because part of where I, where I want to go is I, I let me start here let me start with where I want to go and then I'll come back to some of the myths you know Absolutely. although Jenny can just like do all the myths herself easily too but um, I want to start with the fact that when you poll people um, on what kind of immigration system they want right we've had we've had a number of national polls um, and you take the the parts of the two bills that there've been, there's now a third one, but there were two bills that were completely bipartisan immigration reform bills, right? That are all about making a system that is more effective and more logical and more just and more humane. You take the components of those bills and you run them by the average American and you get like 75% support, right? So we're not really, I mean, we're pretty much in agreement as a country. When we talk about the DREAM Act, you know, for people who are brought here as small children, we get 90% support. We're not actually divided as a country around the kind of immigration system we want. So, so what happens? What happens? Well, what happens is that the average American looks at what that system would look like, a system that was, you know, all of those things, and they go, oh, yeah, I'd like an immigration system like that. But they don't care because it's not about them. 
It doesn't affect them personally, right? And then people who are like immigrant, in part of immigrant families, well, we care, but we don't have any hope. <laughs> you know, we're like, we can't do it. We know we're the minority. We know no one cares. You know, but what is the one institution in our society that is mandated to care passionately about people? Oh, so let me back up. So who calls? The only people that call are the people that want immigrants out and they call They're the 20% and they call over and over and over again. Mm. So, you know, there's no political will to pass immigration reform. But I always say, Shane, I always say, what is the one institution in our society that is mandated to care passionately about people that are not us? and what is the one institution that's mandated to give hope where there's no hope right yeah so that's the body of christ but but i think that the truth is unless the body of christ is really the body of christ and what i mean by that is you know we shocked the ancient world by bringing people together across all the lines jew and greek Mm -hmm. and slave and free and you know we shocked the ancient world it's only when jesus says you know the world will know that I have come because of your unity. He wasn't talking about Baptists and Lutherans. You know, it's when immigrants and non-immigrants come together that mm. suddenly you have the exchange of passion and hope. Mm. That suddenly the non-immigrants wake up and say, oh, this is my this is my brother and sister. This is my family. This is my body. You know, it changes everything. You get passion and, and then maybe you'll call, right? Mm. Maybe you'll actually be a good steward of your influence. You know, and if you're an immigrant and you, you've been working side by side with somebody who isn't an immigrant, suddenly you have more hope because you know there's resources. So the church has to lead the way on this. But really often the church is just, you know, swung, like says in the scripture, the winds of the world just blow us That's sideways good. and sideways. That's Anyhow. Good. Jenny, you want to jump talk about the myths, Jenny. Jenny can talk about no. the myths like nobody else. <laughs> Well, I think I think what's fascinating about the polling data, I mean, I'm honestly sometimes it, it it does surprise me and pulls me back because I think, how is it that the church, the institution, as you were saying, Alexia, that's supposed to love and welcome individuals is the most anti-immigrant. And this is polling data that's been done over decades um, that bears us out. Um, how is that the case? But then also, um, you know, what is actually going to lead to heart transformation among the church? And I think unless churches and individuals have relationships with people who have gone through significant suffering and challenge, then a lot of times you do think it's not about me. It's it's not something that you care about. It's not going to register for an issue that you vote on because you don't think it impacts you. And I think a, a couple things that people... Um, I think we need within the church we need to recognize is that some of the fastest growing churches in the United States and globally are immigrant churches. It's I think there's this idea um, within immigrant communities of this um, fastidious like holding on to Christ and holding on to God because He is their only hope. And I know it being raised in an immigrant family that that Korean Presbyterian church in the Northwest suburbs of Philly was the social institution that really held that immigrant community together. And that is true of a lot of immigrant communities in the United States. And so you see this vibrant faith being lived out in immigrant communities. And so um, Dr. Timothy Tennant, who's the head of Asbury Theological Seminary, said that he believes that the immigrant population is the greatest hope for Christian renewal in the United States, that the very people that we want to keep out are the people that we should let in because there is 
spiritual revival happening within immigrant communities. And Mm. so I think we need to recognize that, which is the immigrant communities are leading us in our faith. um, And they're giving us hope for a revival in this country. So I think that's that's one thing we need to consider. The other thing I would say is that, um, you know, I think that this, the prosperity gospel that the, the U S church has, has, um, succumbed to, you know, this love of this fusion of our faith with nationalism, this hope for prosperity and comfort is constantly being challenged by people who look different than, you know, the majority white population by people who look and and speak different to them. Um, and I think it's, it's forcing the church to reckon with, you know, what do we really believe in and what do we really hope in? And I think, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of churches we work with that are doing great things with, with immigrants, um, immigrant churches themselves are, are the front lines of responding to COVID and caring for their communities. Um, but I do think that the challenge is there's just this lack of relationship within the church and, um, it's only in, in churches that have, you know, these immigrant ministries like that know the immigrants in their communities that are kind of transforming their community. Um, but I think when a lot of churches are isolated or the church pastors and leadership doesn't, you know, really use this as an opportunity um, to be missional, then I think there's this disconnect and people only see it as a political issue when it's actually yeah. a spiritual issue and a biblical issue. Yeah, I want I want to keep talking about that. And by the way, you all that are watching on Facebook and stuff, you can put your questions in the feed. We're keeping an eye on those um, and we're going to try to circle back to some of them. But uh, and I know folks want to hear uh, us reflect on the new administration and have things changed since Trump. But before we do that, Jenny, you I've heard you really frame this as uh, in, in a really helpful way that this is not a. Republican or Democrat thing, like like welcoming immigrants and refugees, is not a Republican thing. It's not this is a Jesus thing, and yeah. I've heard heard you really uh, unpack that some that some of our highest rates of welcoming refugees have been under Republican presidents, but that wasn't the case over the past few years. So maybe talk a little bit more about that. Why this isn't a partisan issue? Yeah, well, I think um, when you look at the history of immigration to the United States and even specific presidents. You know, George W. Bush was the compassionate conservative. He championed immigration reform at the end of his presidency. And by then he had not a lot of political capital. And so it was really hard for him to push it over the finish line. Ronald Reagan was the one who talked, um, was the one who legalized almost 3 million immigrants um, in 1986. Um, And he, at that time, had the broad support of Republicans who felt like this was the compassionate thing to do. And so you see this history of bipartisanship because both Democrats and Republicans understand the economic importance of immigrants. They understand the social impact of immigrants. And by and large, most economists believe that immigrants are a net boon to our economy. And so a lot of Republicans support immigration reform because they know that it's in our economic interest to do so. Um, as well as other reasons, a lot of Democrats support immigration reform because they see the, the human value in immigrants. And, I, I, and, and it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you see the way that the issue is politicized, unfortunately, um, it, it makes people think that it's one side versus the other. When, when you look at the DREAM Act in the Senate right now, 
it is sponsored by Senator Durbin, who's a Democrat from Illinois, and Senator Graham, who's a Republican from South Carolina. Um, and um, and there's other pieces of legislation that have bipartisan support. And so I think that's very important to keep in mind because this conversation is not about persuading a specific political party. It's actually about speaking our values into the conversation. And it's these values that I believe will change the hearts and minds of elected officials across both um, political parties. And so I think for us as Christians, um, you know, one of the ways that we need to speak up in the public square is by not shying away from the values that we understand Jesus talks about and using those values um, to force our elected officials to reckon with what they're actually doing to implement systemic um, changes and policies that will actually impact the people that we care about. And I do want to say, read Jenny's book, mm-hmm. because if you want the details about um, how immigrants contribute economically, if you want to look at some of the conversation about taking away our jobs, if you want to, you know, it's a really fair, solid, factual presentation. If you look at, you know, the way that people think that immigrants are a threat, all of that is in the book rather than, I know we don't have much time here, right? Uh, yeah. The one thing I do want to say, going back to what Jenny was saying about um, what how immigrant churches are revitalizing Christian faith in the United States, is it goes back to what you said at the beginning, Shane, about angels that don't neglect to show hospitality we read in Hebrews because you might be welcoming angels without knowing it. I think it's important to recognize that the word angel means in Greek means messenger bringing a blessing. So an angel can be a person. And it said, you know, that you welcome immigrants without knowing it. Um, The word in Spanish is disfrazado. You know, they're they're in costume. (laughs) They're angels in costume. And and so, you know, to really say, well, that, that's really true. And the Lord is sending missionaries from these vital churches to the United States because we need it. And they're sending them as, as um, angels to bring a blessing to us. Wow. That's good. So we're, uh, we'll come back to you in, in a second, Jenny, on the, uh, how the current administration's doing on refugees. But uh, we're going to sort of distinguish now between the immigration crisis, the border issues. And Alexia, I want to hear from you. You're really, um, uh, you know, seeing this. We've seen the last four years. We heard all about uh, kids in cages. You and I went to jail together, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we did policies. That's uh, a lifelong bond. We went yeah, to we'll, we'll tell that story another night, but, yeah. um, you know, but now we have a new administration and, um, what, what's getting better? What's, what's yeah. the same? What's worse? How, what, what do you think? You know, so for us who work, you know, I, I live only a couple hours from the border and we work a lot in Matthew 25 with people who have newly come across the border and how do we, and asylum seekers and how do we support them and accompany them? Um, so for us, it's not perfect, but it's night and day because the Trump administration Um, passed over 400 restrictive policies, right? Regulations, executive actions. And those were really focused on a lot of, they they were all over the map, but a whole bunch of them were focused on the border. Um, So now there there is definitely a different orientation. The administration has to rebuild the whole infrastructure that was destroyed and it's taking a little time. But just since April 8th, we have, for example, 10 new, large facilities to take care of the children, right? 
since April 8th. Mm-hmm. And there's new ones coming up pretty much all the time. So, you know, they didn't know what to do when the kids first came across, although it's true, they should have known. But, <laughs> but they responded really quickly and really compassionately, you know, recognizing that when somebody sends their child, that's because it's that bad. You know, it's not because these mothers don't care. It's that bad. It's like, you know, in in Germany, when people sent their children, when you send your child, it's because it's really bad, right? Yeah. So so the Biden administration is very compassionate about the kids and trying to figure out with the kids what what's best to do. Um, with the with single people, they're still so far. Title 42 is still being enforced, which is COVID related. So single people are being sent back. But they're trying to figure out a process, you know, as COVID goes away, it's very clear that they're trying to rebuild the vetting process, right? And currently with families about, um, I'm trying to remember which direction this one goes, the third, two thirds, about a third of the families are being sent back and about two thirds are being able to stay and go through a vetting process. So so that's night and day, it's night and day, right? Between what the the Trump administration, and in fact, I just read that um, the Biden administration has appointed someone whose sole task is the rollback of, their, they're calling it the thousand restrictive actions. So we knew wow. about 400, but apparently there was a thousand. Wow. Um, so it's, you know, I'm not saying, obviously there's legislation that has to pass on a deeper level to fix the system, but the legislation the administration is proposing is listening to activists and advocates. So, you know, there's a lot of good, good potential here. Okay, that's really great, and we're gonna we're gonna uh, all get to share like where we want this to be in twenty yeah. years. I, I asked you that; we'll do that in a minute. But Jenny, that was good. Alexia gave us some positive things to hold on to. Now, you've you I, you know I, you posted that there's a headline. I don't think you all can see it very well, but it's from the Washington Post. Biden is set to accept the fewest refugees of any modern president, including Trump. And then you said um, it's extremely disappointing to see the lack of commitment um, in raising the, the refugee ceiling from this administration. Um, and you said we're actually effectively operating the refugee program as if President Trump were still in office. So that's mm-hmm. that. Um, talk a little bit about that. And, and maybe even I mean, this is kind of a different piece of the puzzle from the border issues. And so talk about like what you'd like to see, or, you know, that, that uh, you, you don't sound like you're giving them an A right now. <laughs> no. And, and the white house knows it. I've been in regular communication with them to t- express our disappointment. And it is striking because president Biden said all the right things. He actually publicly committed to raising the refugee ceiling to 125,000, which is more in line with historic norms. Um, and yet, um, he has not signed the paperwork that we need for us to to raise it to a higher level. So right now, the refugee ceiling in place since President Trump was in office is 15,000. And because that ceiling is in place, um, uh, not only are we not getting many refugees, but the president um, basically changed the program so much that the, pro- the program is excluding certain nationalities from even coming in. So Syrians effectively are not really coming in. Somalis are not coming in. Yemenis are not coming in. And so you have this program that not only is severely low in terms of the ceiling, but is categorically denying certain individuals who are fleeing persecution from accessing this very life-saving program. And so 
uh, at the end of February, President Biden signed an executive order that would make reforms to the program. And he publicly um, announced uh, through Secretary of State Tony Blinken that he would raise the ceiling to 62500 which is half of 125000 because we're wow. pretty much halfway through the fiscal year. It's been two months. And so the State Department, because Tony Blinken was out there talking about this number, started booking all these flights of refugees um, under this assumption that the president was going to sign the paperwork. And they thought in a few days, he's just going to do it. And a week after that, when President Biden didn't sign the, the necessary paperwork, these refugees couldn't come in because they were still um, that opening of the program and these new categories that they qualified for wasn't in effect. So all those flights had to be canceled. So mm. all these Congolese refugees that we are aware of sold all their belongings to wait in the capital city to fly to the U.S., and when their flights were canceled, they lit- they actually had to go back into the refugee camp with none of their belongings, um, nothing that uh, they had before because they had sold everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of our staff members who are Congolese are still waiting for their family members to come. We have other refugees we've worked with that are just actually devastated because they've been waiting so long and they thought that you know, they would be able to come now. And so right now, um, the fiscal year started October 1st, but... Uh, so far, the end of March marked the halfway point of the, of the fiscal year for the government. And, pres- and basically, there's only been 2,050 refugees admitted. So wow. if that is the trend, and we end the, the second half of the year with the same number, we're basically going to get around 5,000 refugees, which is the lowest number we've ever had in the fiscal year since the start of the program in 1980. Yeah. So President Biden needs to follow through on his commitment that he publicly made. It's been two, uh, two months already. And the more he delays, the more we don't have these avenues of protection available for people who really have nowhere else to go. That was really, really clear. And we will take that little clip and share that around. <laughs> wow. Oh, it's, it's really desperate. Um, I want to get to this question from Guillermo Mario um, uh, that it, it, you, I think both of you all signed the, the, the statement that Red Letter Christians and a bunch of different groups work together, Evangelicals for Justice, your organization, like we all work together on a Christian nationalism um, to, to denounce that and what we saw at the Capitol, but all the conditions that have led up to that. And Guillermo's question is, can you unpack the role of nationalism in the church and how that impacts individuals' views on immigration. As an immigrant, uh, Guillermo says, I'm appalled by the pervasive nationalism and militarism in the church. Y'all, either one, you want to respond to that? Well, you know, I teach um, political theology as part of, not as a separate course, but a part of my courses. And it's really uh, fascinating to look historically at the relationship between the church and the state because Christian nationalism is nothing new. And in fact, exists in every religion, right? There's Muslim nationalism and Jewish nationalism, right? Um, It's the identification of a government with the church as if they're the same thing, as if a country is the body of Christ. Um, And, you know, the other extreme is to have no relationship to people who go into sort of monastic places and absolute and you know, try to have a little island of sanity and have no relationship with the government, right? So there's there's these two extremes, and that's mostly the church has been in the middle, right? And there's been all fighting in the whole, you know, 2,000 his, years of history about how we engage the government constructively, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for most of those 2,000 years, Christian nationalism has been seen as a heresy. Mm-hmm. That anytime you identify, because, you know, since Constantine walked, walked soldiers across the river and declared them baptized, that was the first yeah. instance of Christian nationalism, right? Um, and you can see that, like everybody can look back and say, oh, no, that was heresy. You can't become a Christian just because you're a Roman. You know, that doesn't make you a Christian, even if Constantine declares you one, right? That, that you have to decide to follow Christ. That, that's why it's a heresy, because you can't declare someone a Christian if, you know, they're not deciding to follow Christ. Yeah. Um, but, but I think there's just been this real um, pernicious ramp up of Christian nationalism. Over it. But I think it's important to put it in the historic context, that it's yeah. never not been there on and off throughout the whole history of Christianity. Jenny, that was real helpful. Jenny, do you want to say anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I would just say quickly that I think um, because nationalism has become the prominent and dominant response of the church to immigration, it has overcome any desire, I think, a lot of times from the church to show empathy and compassion because the rule of law always trumps loving your neighbor. And so I think that is problematic because a lot of times when churches, the broad church talks about immigration, they can't get over the fact that some immigrants may have broken the law. Um, or there's this power dynamic where, um, you know, there's this like uh, um, personal attributes, right. To immigrants saying, Oh, they're lawbreakers because they didn't follow the letter to the law to the T and they're breaking the laws to come here. And that, that becomes a dominant narrative. I think within the church that precludes many followers of Jesus from showing compassion to these individuals. Um, and I think the thing that we have to, to constantly repeat back to ourselves and the broader church is that the law um, has constantly, there's injustice baked into us law and, it's especially true when it comes to immigration. And just because something is legal doesn't make it just something just because something is legal doesn't make it moral. And we have to constantly be changing our laws um, to recognize the dignity of individuals who are made in the image of God. And so I think the nationalism has taken an ugly turn when the church trumpets the rule of law as a reason to not um, show compassion to their neighbors. Yeah. And I always love to say that it's also a question we really believe in the United States and our constitution in appropriate punishment, right? Not cruel and unusual punishment. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way that our immigration system actually works is cruel and unusual punishment. And we could unpack that for hours. But so, you know, when someone says to me, what is it about illegal that you don't understand? I say, what is it about cruel and unusual punishment that you don't understand? You know, so let's look at what is an appropriate. And I love, I just got to say what Juan Martinez says. Juan Martinez says, what is an appropriate punishment for someone who breaks into your house, paints your house, builds your deck, takes care of your garden, takes care of your children, clean, and cleans your house and makes you dinner? What's the appropriate punishment? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. And of course, what, what we have to, the information that you don't have in that picture is that our um, sweat category of who we allow in is very, very disconnected from reality. So we let 5,000, we give 5,000 visas a year, flat cap since 1995 for unskilled labor. And that includes all farm labor. But since slavery, before slavery, we've imported about 70% of our farm labor in this country. 
So you can see that the amount that we allow has nothing to do with our economic needs. So, you know, Juan's funny little story is really just about, look, we have economic needs for these people. We just don't have a system that can provide them with visas that fit the economic needs. So, you know, anyhow. Okay, so here's the deal. This hour flew by. There's questions still coming in. We're, we, Alexi and I were already talking about how we knew we couldn't do all this in one night. So we might have to do a little uh, multiple series on immigration and refugees because I think it's one of the most pressing issues in our country. And it's one of the most hopeful. We can mm-hmm. actually see some progress made. Um, so I want to end on that hope note. I got just two things. I, uh, there's folks that want to know practically how they can respond. So we don't want to go without, you know, when I was in Europe before the pandemic, I was staying in people's houses as I was speaking and there were Iraqi refugees in this entire like hospitality network. Um, They had, you know, job matching programs, all kinds of stuff. And so I wonder if each of you would take a minute to say like, do we do do we have a hospitality network? You know, can people welcome folks? Can people write letters? Should they? How do people show up right now with the work that both of you are doing? Yeah. So I would say two things. Um, there is a petition on WeWelcomeRefugees.com. So if you go to their website, please sign the petition because I am updating the White House um, or my uh, our friend Tess Clark, who runs that platform, is updating the White House pretty much every week with numbers of people who sign on. So go to wewelcomerefugees.com. There's a White House petition and we are sending the signatory numbers to President Biden so that he's aware that this is something people care about. Um, The second thing I would say is, um, at least at World Relief, we have a network of 17 U.S. offices that are reaching out to communities and need volunteers um, to work with immigrants and refugees. And so um, look on our website and connect with the local office. We are always in need of volunteers. I think because things are still virtual, it provides a unique opportunity for someone to maybe volunteer in another office in another state. Um, and so please do that because I think um, all of that is is needed. And I would also say, thirdly, um, please talk to your pastors and within your churches about what's going on because we really need church leaders to have courage to, to um, start educating and preaching about the issue of immigration from the pulpit. Um, and a lot of times that spark will be created by someone who's sitting in the pews. And so ask your pastor and ask your, your church community uh, what you guys can do together to address this. Great. And, you know, Thanks. partnership is so key. Like Jenny said, if you can partner with World Relief, that's better, right? Because they have the infrastructure and they can do it. But if you're in a part of the country where World Relief isn't, you might want to check out the Interfaith Immigration Coalition, which has a whole bunch of partners, denominational partners. And, you know, they might already be doing something right. Catholic charities might be doing something. The Methodists are amazing on this stuff, you know, like like partner, because a lot of our evangelical churches just don't know what to do. Right. The Evangelical Immigration Table does very good work around um, advocacy. And you can certainly go check them out, Evangelical Immigration Table, but they don't do the hands-on work. But there are people doing the hands-on work in your neighborhood. You just need to find them. Cool. Right. And if you're in Southern California, like, look us up. We can use you. Boom. (laughs) So the the last thing I wanted us to end on a a, a note of hope and casting vision, because we're people of faith. And I think of that scripture that we don't you know, we don't hope for what we already see, but we're we're having faith that things can be different. We believe that they can be different. So when you think of 
a generation from now or even, you know, 20 years from now, 10 years from now, even what do you hope we like? What, what, there's a lot of folks talking about comprehensive immigration reform, a path to citizenship. What are a couple of handholds? Like, what do you hope America looks like being driven more by love than by fear on these issues? What does that look like? I think we have to start first with the people that are here, that we've had a broken immigration system for 40 years. And that residue of that is a lot of people that are part of our communities and part of the fabric of our communities and working and raising kids. And, you know, they're your neighbors and they can't get legal. (laughs) So, you know, something to deal with them, that would be really lovely. Like we have to do a reset on the system. And then secondly, there's really broad consensus around what a good system looks like. We can do so much better, you know, and I I would just encourage people to um, go to sites like the National Migration Forum, you know, go to sites like Chirla, go to World Relief, you know, to read Jenny's book that talk about what that kind of broad, complex policy picture looks like, because it's not simple. It's not like there's like two things, but but there's really broad consensus about a lot of it. We could have a system that's way more effective, logical, just, and humane. And that would be my hope. Right. Great. Jen- Jenny, any closing words on that? Yeah, I would just say I want the church to be a people of radical hospitality where we don't just welcome people, but we treat them like they're our family. And Sung Chan Ra actually has this beautiful analogy where he says we have to go from hostility to hospitality that's henry now and he got it from Henry. oh is that right i'm sorry okay i read it in his book okay and from okay so it's hospitality to it's hostility um, to hospitality hostility to hospitality but hospitality is not enough we have to go from hospitality to household and it's this idea that yes there's an extension of grace and and welcome through hospitality but ultimately we want people to be treated as if they're our family and so that is my hope for the church um it's also my hope that our elected officials would have courage um to do the right thing even if it's politically costly and so Hmm. hopefully we'll we'll get there and well that they would be a lot of them are christians right that they would live their christian faith And that, you know, we have to help them do that, right? We have to encourage them and pray for them because a lot of them are fellow believers. Yes. Well, this has been great. It's uh, on the hour, but I think that's a great, great vision for what we could be. And I I was thinking, Alexia, when we were arrested for protesting the immigration policies, we had the names and the stories of yeah, mm-hmm. we like dreamers and immigrant families all over the country. And just reading those as we were being detained, I, I thought w- the power of that is how personal it was. Right. And you talk a lot about how mm-hmm. our biggest problem is not a compassion problem, but a proximity problem, a relationship problem. And so for all of you listening in, um, let's think about immigration, not as an issue to debate, but as neighbors to be loved. And if you don't know the names of people, then let's be cautious talking about them as an issue. Like, let's find some on ramps like the ones that we've heard about tonight and really think, what does it look like to be followers of Jesus, to be the church and welcome people with a love that is big as God's love? So let's do that. And both of you have been an inspiration tonight. We're going to try to do more uh, outside of this, I think. But uh, 
we better close for tonight. Let me just say this, that we do all these faith forums for free because we want everybody to be able to tune in and money not to be an obstacle. But we do like giving a small gift to support the ministry and work of Alexia and Jenny. We're going to do that tonight. We're also going to give a little gift to Rosa for that beautiful song she kicked us (laughs) off with. So if you can donate, then just go give a small gift at redletterchristians.org so we can keep doing stuff like this. And it's folks that have resources that help make it possible for everybody to listen in. What a great hour. So I'm going to send this out with this prayer that uh, I first heard this. I, don't, I mean, it's circulated broadly, hasn't it, Alexia? Um, but I first heard it at Fuller, uh, where, where you are. Um, and it's called the Immigrant Apostles' Creed. It was written or uh, compiled by Reverend Jose Luis Casal. And this is our closing tonight. I believe in Almighty God who guided the people in exile and in Exodus, the God of Joseph in Egypt and Daniel in Babylon, the God of foreigners and immigrants. I believe in Jesus Christ, a displaced Galilean who was born away from his people and his home, who fled his country with his parents when his life was in danger. When he returned to his own country, he suffered under the the oppression of Pontius Pilate, the servant of a foreign power. Jesus was persecuted, beaten, tortured, and unjustly condemned to death. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, not as a scorned foreigner, but to offer us citizenship into God's kingdom. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the eternal immigrant, from God's kingdom among us, who speaks all languages, lives in all countries, and reunites all races. I believe that the church is a secure home for foreigners and for all believers. I believe that the communion of saints begins when we embrace all God's people in all their diversity. I believe in forgiveness, which makes us all equal before God, and in reconciliation, which heals our brokenness. I believe that in the resurrection, God will unite us as one people in which all are distinct and all are alike at the same time. I believe in life eternal in which no one will be foreigner, but all will be citizens of the kingdom where God reigns forever and ever. Amen. The Immigrant yeah. Apostles' Creed by Reverend Jose Luis Casal. Thank you, Alexia. Thank you, Jenny. And thank you all for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.